Chapter 16 of The Skylark of Valeron by E. E. Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 As Seaton assumed the near collision of suns which had affected so disastrously the planet Valeron did not come unheralded to overwhelm a world unwarned, since for many hundreds of years her civilization had been of a high order indeed. With all their resources of knowledge and of power, however, it was pitifully little that the people of Valeron could do. For of what avail are the puny energies of man compared to the practically infinite forces of cosmic phenomena? Any attempt of the humanity of the doomed planet to swerve from their courses the incomprehensible masses of those two hurtling suns was as surely doomed to failure as would be the attempt of an ant to thrust from its rails an onrushing locomotive. But what little could be done was done, done scientifically and logically, done if not altogether without fear, at least in as much as was humanly possible without favor. With mathematical certainty were plotted the areas of least strain, and in those areas were constructed shelters, shelters buried deeply enough to be unaffected by the coming upheavals of the world's crust, shelters of unbreakable metal so designed, so latticed and braced, as to withstand the seismic disturbances to which they were inevitably to be subjected. Having determined the number of such shelters that could be built, equipped, and supplied with the necessities of life in the time allowed, the Board of Selection began its cold-blooded and heartless task. Scarcely one in a thousand of Valeron's teeming millions was to be given a chance for continued life, and they were to be chosen only from the children who would be in the prime of young adulthood at the time of the catastrophe. These children were the pick of the planet, flawless in mind, body, and heredity. They were assembled in special schools near their assigned refuges, where they were instructed intensively in everything that they would have to know in order that civilization should not disappear utterly from the universe. Such a thing could not be kept a secret long, and it is best to touch as lightly as possible upon the scenes which ensued after the certainty of doom became public knowledge. Characters already strong were strengthened but those already weak went to pieces entirely in orgies to a normal mind unthinkable. Almost overnight a peaceful and law-abiding world went mad, became an insane hotbed of crime, rapine, and pillage unspeakable. Martial law was declared at once, and after a few thousand maniacs had been ruthlessly shot down, the sober inhabitants were allowed to choose between two alternatives. They could either die then and there before a firing squad, or they could wait and take whatever slight chance there might be of living through what was to come. But devoting their every effort meanwhile to the end that through those selected few the civilization of Valeron should endure. Many chose death and were executed similarly and without formality, without regard to wealth or station. The rest worked. Since the human mind cannot be kept indefinitely at high tension, the new condition of things came in time to be regarded almost as normal, 
and as months lengthened into years the routine was scarcely broken. But always there were the sly, the self-seekers, the bribers, the corruptionists, willing to go to any lengths whatever to avoid their doom. Not openly did they carry on their machinations, but like loathsome worms eating at the heart of an outwardly fair fruit. But the scientists, almost to a man, were loyal. Trained to think, they thought clearly and logically, and surrounded themselves with soldiers and guards of the same stripe. Time went on. The shelters were finished. Into them were taken stores, libraries, tools, and equipment of every sort necessary for the rebuilding of a fully civilized world. Finally the children, now in full prime of young manhood and young womanhood, were carefully checked in. Once inside those massive portals of metal they were of a world apart. They were completely informed and completely educated. They had for long governed themselves with neither aid nor interference. They knew precisely what they must face. They knew exactly what to do and exactly how to do it. Behind them the mighty multiply seals were welded into place, and broken rock by the cubic mile was blasted down upon their refuges. Day by day the heat grew more and more intense. The tides waxed ever higher. Cyclonic storms raged ever fiercer, accompanied by an incessant blaze of lightning and a deafening continuous roar of thunder. Work was at an end, and the masses were utterly beyond control. The devoted were butchered by their frantic fellows. The hopeless were stung to madness. The stolid were driven to frenzy by the realization that there was to be no future. The remaining sly ones deftly turned the unorganized fury of the mob into a purposeful attack upon the shelters, their only hope of life. But at each refuge the rabble met an unyielding wall of guards loyal to the last, and of scientists who, their work now done, were merely waiting for the end. Guards and scientists fought with rays, rifles, swords, and finally with clubs, stones, fists, feet, and teeth. Outnumbered by thousands they fell, and the howling mob surged over their bodies. To no purpose. Though shelters had been designed and constructed to withstand the attacks of nature gone berserk, and futile indeed were the attempts of the frenzied hordes to tear away into their sacred recesses. Thus died the devoted and high-souled band who had saved their civilization. But in that death each man was granted the boon which, deep in his heart, he had craved. They had died quickly and violently, fighting for a cause they knew to be good. The suns passed, each upon his appointed way. The cosmic forces ceased to war, and to the tortured and ravaged planet there at last came peace. The surviving children of Valoron emerged from their subterranean retreats and undauntedly took up the task of rebuilding their world. And to such good purpose did they devote themselves to the problems of rehabilitation, that in a few hundred years there bloomed upon Valoron a civilization and a culture scarcely to be equaled in the universe. For the new race had been cradled in adversity. 
In its ancestry there was no physical or mental taint or weakness, all dross having been burned away by the fires of cosmic catastrophe which had so nearly obliterated all the life of the planet. Immediately after the emergence it had been observed that the two outermost planets of the system had disappeared, and that in their stead revolved a new planet. This phenomenon was recognized for what it was, an exchange of planets, something to give concern only to astronomers, and to them only mathematically, in the computation of now greatly perturbed orbits. No one except sheerest romancers ever gave thought to the possibility of life upon other worlds, it being an almost mathematically demonstrable fact that the Valeronians were the only life in the entire universe. And even if other planets might possibly be inhabited, what of it? The vast reaches of empty ether intervening between Valeron and even her nearest fellow planet formed an insuperable obstacle even to communication, to say nothing of physical passage. When the interplanetary invaders were discovered upon Valeron, Quadrin Vornell, the most brilliant physicist of the planet, and his son Quadrin Rodnor, the most renowned, were among the first to be informed of the visitation. Of these two, Quadrin Vornell had for many years been engaged in researches of the most abstruse and fundamental character upon the ultimate structure of matter. He had delved deeply into those which we know as matter, energy, and ether, and had studied exhaustively the phenomena characteristic of or associated with atomic, electric, and photonic rearrangements. His son, while a scientist of no mean attainments in his own right, did not possess the phenomenally powerful and profoundly analytical mind that had made the elder Quadrin the outstanding scientific genius of his time. He was, however, a synchronizer par excellence, possessing to a unique degree the ability to develop things and processes of great utilitarian value from concepts and discoveries of a purely scientific and academic nature. The vibrations which we know as Hertzian waves had long been known and had long been employed in radio, both broadcast and tight beam, in television, in beam transmission of power, and in receiverless visirays and their blocking screens. When Quadrin the Elder disrupted the atom, however, successfully and safely liberating and studying not only its stupendous energy, but also an entire series of vibrations, rays, and particles theretofore unknown to science, Quadrin the Younger began forthwith to turn the resulting products to the good of mankind. Intraatomic energy soon drove every prime mover of Valeron, and shorter and shorter waves were harnessed. In beams, fans, and broadcasts, Quadrin Rodnor combined and heterodyned them, making of them tools and instruments immeasurably superior in power, precision, and adaptability to anything that his world had ever before known. Due to the signal abilities of brilliant father and famous son, the laboratory in which they labored was connected by a private communication beam with the executive office of the Bardile of Valeron. Bardile, freely translated, means coordinator. He was neither king, emperor, nor president, and while his authority was supreme, he was in no sense a dictator. A paradoxical statement this, but a true one, 
for the orders, or rather requests and suggestions, of the Bordile merely guided the activities of men and women who had neither government nor laws, as we understand the terms, but were working of their own volition for the good of all mankind. The Bordile could not conceivably issue an order contrary to the commonweal, nor would such an order have been obeyed. Upon the wall of the laboratory the tuned buzzer of Bardile's beam communicator sounded its subdued call, and Kleinor Siblin, the scientist's capable assistant, took the call upon his desk instrument. A strong youthful face appeared upon the screen. "'Radnor is not here, Siblin?' The pictured visitor glanced about the room as he spoke. "'No, sir. He is out in the spaceship making another test flight.' He is merely circling the world, however, so that I can easily get him on the plate here, if you wish. That would perhaps be desirable. Something very peculiar has occurred, concerning which all three of you should be informed. The connections were soon made, and the Bordile went on. A semicircular dome of force has been erected over the ruins of the ancient city of Mosulin. It is impossible to say how long it has been in place, since you know the ruins lie in an entirely unpopulated area. It is, however, of an unknown composition and pattern, being opaque to vision and to our visibeams. It is also apparently impervious to matter. Since this phenomena seems to lie in your province, I would suggest that you three men investigate it and take such steps as you deem necessary. It is noted, O Bardile, and Kleinor Siblin cut the beam. He then shot out their heaviest visiray beam, poising its viewpoint directly over what, in the days before the cataclysm, had been the populous city of Mosulin. Straight down the beam drove, upon the huge hemisphere of greenly glinting force, urged downward by the full power of the quadrant's mighty generators. By the very vehemence of its thrust it tore through the barrier, but only for an instant. The watchers had time to perceive only fleetingly a greenish-yellow haze of light, but before any details could be grasped their beam was snapped. The automatically reacting screens had called for and had received enough additional power to neutralize the invading beam. Then, to the amazement of the three physicists, a beam of visible energy thrust itself from the green barrier and began to feel its way along their own invisible visiray. Siblin cut off his power instantly and leaped toward the door. "'Whoever they are, they know something,' he shouted as he ran. "'Don't want them to find this laboratory, so I'll set up a diversion with a rocket plane. If you watch it all, Vornell, do it from a distance and with a spy ray, not a carrier beam. I'll get in touch with Rodnor on the way.' Even though he swung around in a wide circle to approach the strange stronghold at a wide angle to his former line, such was the power of the plane that Siblin reached his destination in little more than an hour. Keying Rodnor's visibeam to the visi plates of the plane, so that the distant scientists could see everything that happened, Siblin again drove a heavy beam into the unyielding pattern of green force. This time, however, their reaction was instantaneous. A fierce tongue of green flame licked out and seized the flying plane in midair. One wing and side panel were sliced off neatly, and Siblin was thrown out violently, but he did not fall. Surrounded by a vibrant shell of energy, 
it was drawn rapidly toward the huge dome. The dome merged with the shell as it touched it, but the two did not coalesce. The shell passed smoothly through the dome, which as smoothly closed behind it. Siblin inside the shell, the shell inside the dome. End of chapter 16